Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, we're going to get started with Sunday School. And today's Sunday School is about the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, and the first Thanksgiving. So if you're attending Sunday School, take a seat. Thank you. So... Um, this was my last lecture in Reformation history, and I thought, what would be better subject for us to take on than the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving and the Mayflower, and the whole, that whole story and what we can learn from that. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I want to start with the general setting of the 17th century. So the Mayflower sailed in 1620, early 17th century. And at that same time, several things are going on. First of all, a colony had been planted in Jamestown in 1607, but three years later in 1610, 500 people came on the initial Jamestown plantation. By three years later, only 60 were left. The rest had died. Almost a 90% death rate in three years. So the second thing that happened is we hear a lot about the 1619 project today where the first African-Americans were brought to the New World and were brought into Virginia, and they came to Jamestown. How many of you heard about the 1619 Project? Yeah. And the liberals are making much of the fact that that was the introduction of slavery in the United States. Well, it really wasn't. About 20 to 30 African Americans were brought to the New World, and they came to Jamestown, but they were sold as indentured servants, not slaves. Did you know? I just found that out this week. So this gigantic lie we're being exposed to that that was the introduction of slavery as a lie. An indentured servant works for seven years, then they have their freedom. Uh, and m most Europeans were, came to the New World as, as indentured servants. So there was nothing different. So we have, the, we have the, the planting of Jamestown and its failure. It continues to go, but it's a dismal failure. Secondly, we have the 1619 blacks coming. And thirdly, we have, you may not know this, but we have the decimation of Christianity in Japan taking place. So in the 16th century, about 1550s, a French Jesuit priest, Catholic priest, went to Japan and evangelized the Japanese with great success. But as we get to about 1610, there's somewhere between 750,000 and a million Japanese Christians. And the population of Japan then would have been under 5 million people. So it's a major proportion of the population are Christians. But in 1614, Six years before the Mayflower sailed, the government turned on the Christians and began to persecute them just mercilessly. So, so we arrive at, at today, there's almost no Christians left in Japan. Ironically, the great headquarters of Christianity in Japan was Hiroshima, or Nagasaki, I can't remember which, it may have been Nagasaki, when the bomb came, it killed the few remaining Christians that were left in Japan. Okay. As all that's going on, the Mayflowers sailing for the New World. So we want to talk about the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, and the first Thanksgiving. I want to make six points this morning, six facts about the Pilgrim story. Six facts. I will we'll lay out the, 
our discussion around these six facts. The first is that it was a lost story, a lost story. If you had lived in 1840 and a friend had brought up the Mayflower, you would have not had any idea what they were talking about because no one knew anything about the Pilgrims or the Mayflower or the first Thanksgiving in the middle of the 19th century, 200 years after they sailed. William Bradford, one of the people that sailed on the Mayflower, wrote his journals. They were recovered in 1856. Uh, Bradford, who died in 1657, was the first governor of Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts and was one of those who sailed on the Mayflower. His journals, which he wrote longhand, bound in leather and written in longhand, were the only record of the Mayflower's voyage. Its survivors and the only history of the early decades after their landing at Plymouth. Passed down to his descendants for 100 years, Bradford's journals ended up at the Old South Church in Boston. After the American Revolution, the British took Bradford's journals back to England with a whole lot of other books that they took from the church, where it was put into an old dusty library in England, and in the middle of the 19th century, uh, I, I think it was an English bishop discovered Bradford's journals and began to read them and said, oh my goodness, what is this? This amazing find. And so in 1897, end of the 19th century, the journals were returned to Massachusetts. Uh, here's a picture of the bound, uh, the bound journal. It's leather bound. Brad, uh, William Bradford wrote it out himself. He had it bound. It's, this is a 400-year-old book. It's fallen apart, I think, now. And here's uh, some of the internal pages. So because of this was recovered in 1897, by the time the First World War comes around, people in America are starting to know the story of the Mayflower and the Plymouth Landing and the Pilgrims and that whole story. If this book had not been recovered, we'd know nothing about this today, which I think is an interesting fact. I didn't know this until recently. A story had been lost for 200 years. Not knowing about the Mayflower or the Pilgrims or their landing in October of 1864 during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln made the fourth Thursday of November a day of thanksgiving, quote, a day of thanksgiving and praise to Almighty God, the beneficent creator and ruler of the universe, end of quote. Lincoln asked Americans to humble themselves, quote, now I'm reading from Lincoln, humble themselves in the dust and offer up penitent and fervent prayers to God for the healing of the nation, end of quote. Can you imagine a president saying that today? <laughs> Humble ourselves in the dust, pray that God will heal our nation. Can you imagine Joe Biden saying that or anybody in the presidency in recent years? I can't. So the, the first fact is the story had been lost and was only recovered to public consciousness really about that time of the First World War 100 years ago. And thank goodness it was recovered because it's an amazing story. Our second fact is that the pilgrims were not Puritans. These always get mixed up. The 45-odd Christians on the Mayflower, there's only 45 of them, were, were pilgrims. It's important to distinguish between Puritans and pilgrims. The pilgrims were a small group of separatists that because of persecution fled from England to Holland in about 1602. At their peak, the separatists pilgrims numbered about 300 people. After 18 impoverished years in Holland, a small group of pilgrims left for the New World on the Mayflower 
They were scheduled to leave in August, but they actually left in September of 1620. They were going to the New World to establish a beachhead that the other pilgrims would eventually follow. So this small group of 45 out of the 300 are going to the New World. They're going to start a colony, and then eventually the other pilgrims are going to follow them. Well, the other pilgrims never followed them because after the first year, the death rate was so high. Letters came back to the old world describing what had happened, and none of the pilgrims in Holland wanted to go. I mean, and you can't blame them for that. The pilgrims were called separatists because they had separated from the Church of England. Under Queen Elizabeth, at the end of the 16th century, and King James, beginning of the 17th century, the sovereigns at that time Separation from the state church was punishable by death. You remember about 1590, uh, Queen Elizabeth put two men to death for starting a church outside the Church of England in England. First they were thrown in the Tower of London where they languished for a while, then they were executed. So this is the environment in which the pilgrims are wanting to establish their own church. They're separatists, but they're afraid because this is what's going to happen if they uh, start their own church. And so that is why the pilgrims fled to the New World. They would rather live in what they called the howling wilderness of the New World than join the Church of England. That's how strongly they felt about it. By contrast, the Puritans were a large renewal movement within the Church of England, not not separate from it. The Puritans probably comprised one-third of England's population. They did not separate from the state church. Rather, they attempted to reform the Anglican church from within. Theologically, there was very little difference between the pilgrims and the Puritans. The main difference was this idea of separation from the Church of England. Puritanism began about 1570 and ended about 1690, although there's always Puritans reading Pur- people reading Puritan literature and, and becoming Puritans theologically, at least, along with the Puritans. So that's our second point. Second point, the pilgrims were different than the Puritans, although we're going to find out in a minute that the Puritans followed the pilgrims and populated the New World. But the pilgrims were a very small group. The Puritans were a large group. 10 to 20,000 Puritans came to New England because this little group of pilgrims preceded them. Third point, the pilgrim departure was a fiasco. It's hard to overstate this. And uh, I can't believe they actually left, but they did. When you, when you see what happened, some of them didn't want to leave and they left anyway. And uh. The passengers on the Mayflower were a diverse group. The Christians were outnumbered. There were about 102 total passengers. Only 42 were saints or pilgrims. And 60 were what the saints called strangers. In other words, they were baptized Anglicans, members of the Church of England, but not very committed to Christianity. Soldiers of fortune, mercenaries, or adventurers. In addition, excuse me, in addition, there were 25 to 30 crew members who bitterly persecuted the saints. They didn't care about the strangers, but it was the saints they didn't like, and it was the saints that they persecuted. They intended to leave England in early spring, plant crops over the summer, and harvest their crops the first year. However, due to administrative obstructions, they didn't sail until early August 1620. The timing was bad. It was late in the year. 
They would now arrive just as winter was beginning. They departed in two vessels, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. Twice they returned to England for repairs to the Speedwell because it was leaking really badly. And eventually the Speedwell stayed home, transferring its passengers to the Mayflower. So now the Mayflowers originally had about 50 or 60 passengers. Now it's got 102 passengers, okay? To the pilgrims' dismay, the final departure actually occurred on September 6th, 1620. So now they're late into the year. They know they're going to arrive in November or December. That's not when they want to arrive in New England, but they're going to go anyway, which, as I said earlier, is astounding. The fourth fact is this. They spent 65 miserable days at sea. Oh, I just, you know, the, in Bradford's journals, there's only a couple paragraphs devoted to their crossing to the Atlantic. But it doesn't take much imagination to understand what this must have been like. They, the boat traveled at a walking speed about two miles per hour. The ancient, in, in this time, in the 17th century, sailing vessels would travel between two and four miles per hour. That's all the faster they could go, walking speed. But they traveled at that speed 24 hours a day. So take three miles an hour, 24, that's about 75 miles a day. Or maybe four miles an hour, you're almost 100 miles a day, okay? But the Mayflower only made 50 miles a day. And as we have mentioned, there were 102 passengers crammed into the hold. The Mayflower was only 90 feet by 26 feet. There was barely room to stand up in the hold. They have a replica of the Mayflower at Plymouth. I mean, have you, any of you been to the, in Plymouth and seen the replica? Yeah, I've, have you been through it? We have, and you can barely stand up in the hold where the people were. There was barely room to stand up. As we've see, seen, 60 of the 102 were formal Christians at best. Imagine the suffering and the stress. Here's a picture of the Mayflower that's a replicate. That's an actual photo of it that's at Plymouth Harbor. And you can see it's not real long. You can see the people on the deck there, which gives you some, like, gives you some perspective on its size. And uh, these were brave people. The pilgrims, so we see here, you see the people, and see this is, the, this is where they are. They're down here in the, in the belly of the ship for nine weeks. <clears throat> The pilgrims rejoiced in the sovereignty of God during this trip. The strangers grumbled. And I can't believe the, the saints didn't grumble as well. They must have been very tempted to grumble, and I'm sure they did some grumbling because it was miserable. Most of them were seasick. It's winter now. We're moving into winter on the North Atlantic. And the, the, they got 20-foot waves, 30-foot waves, 10-foot waves. <coughs> very few of these people had ever been to sea before. There's no ventilation on the boat. Here's a, here's a view of the side view of the Mayflower. You can, this is where the people are living, right here in this section, and down here on the end. 102 people crammed into that little space, about five to six feet tall. You can see there's no windows, no ventilation, no toilets, just a bucket to go to the bathroom in, which they threw overboard occasionally. No privacy of any kind. You got couples, you got families. No lighting except candles. And in the 17th century, candles are very expensive. There's an interesting study on the price of light. It's a, it's a historical study. It's really fascinating. We just so appreciate having lights like this. But most of history 
when the sun went down, you just went to bed because you couldn't afford candles and there was no other lighting. And so when it was dark, you were sleeping. When it was light, you were awake. You couldn't read at night. You could do nothing at night. And that's pretty much the way it was on the Mayflower. And not only that, but the days are short. We're coming into winter. It's this time of year. No lighting, no showers, inadequate clothing. Most of them only had one or two, one or two changes of clothing. <coughs> Excuse me. No way to wash clothes. The boat leaked continually. So they got water everywhere. Uh, no way to wash their clothes. The boat leaked. No bathing for two and a half months. No deodorant. Deodorant was not existent in the 17th century. You're not bathing. You're not changing your clothes. No deodorant. Plus, you got people thrown up all over the inside of the boat because they're seasick. Lice and fleas. Everybody had lice and fleas in the 17th century. The stench in the hold must have been almost incredible. The babies cried day and night. Then there was the boredom. There was nothing to do. It's dark in the hold, and the sailors didn't want them up on the deck. So the monotony must have just been grinding. Nine weeks. Three of the women were pregnant. One gave birth at sea, and she named her child Oceanus. And I think Oceanus survived the voyage and survived for a while. I can't remember all the details. The other two women gave birth shortly after they arrived in the New World. Their food consisted of dried vegetables, dried biscuits, what was called in the old world, old times, hardtack. So they would take biscuits, they would cook them, then they'd dry them as dry as they could get them, so they were just like little bricks. That way they would keep longer because there was no moisture in them. But after about two weeks, worms appeared in the hardtack. But this is all we got to eat, so we have to eat it. Pick the worms out and eat the hardtack. Aren't you glad you live in the modern world? Okay, these are tough people. These are really tough people. I, I read, the, I'm preparing these notes, I'm thinking, oh, what would I have done? Would not have been good in this environment. Okay, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I have this kind of toughness. There was a small amount of a beef jerky that they had each day. For drink, all they had was beer and rum and very bad water. So it was mostly beer. So here you are. You're on the ocean. You're seasick. It's dark. There's no light. You got crying babies. There's water everywhere. You don't have a toilet. You, don't, you can't bathe. You can't clean up. And all you have to drink is beer. Because beer was safe, was safe to drink in those days because I think I mentioned to you in one of the earlier lectures that they always boiled beer before they made it, and nobody knew the bo in those days that boiling killed bacteria. All they knew was when they drank beer, they didn't get sick. And when they drank water, they did get sick, so people drank a lot of beer. It was considered health food. In fact, Guinness advertised in England, and still advertising in England, big billboards saying, drink Guinness for, for your health, because that was, the, that was the tradition in Britain. And so here we have it. This is not a pleasant situation. Add to this the terror of winter gales on the North Atlantic, and that, as I mentioned earlier, none of the passengers had ever been at sea before. In addition, they had no idea where they were going. Or what would exactly greet them when they got there? Nobody knew anything about the New World at this point in time. We knew a little bit about Jamestown and English fishermen will go to the uh, banks off of New England and fish for cod. 
And they would dry the cod and then they'd come back to England, but nobody really knew anything about the New England coast any farther than about 100 feet inside the beach. And beyond that, nobody knew anything. They knew there were Indians there. They knew no, almost nothing about them. And they weren't going for England. They were heading actually for the, where New York is today. That was their destination. The crew made matters worse. They were unbelievers. Some mocked and persecuted uh, the 42 pilgrims mercilessly. Here is how George Willison in his book sums, up, sums it up from Bradford's diary. There's a wonderful book on this subject called Saints and Strangers. If you want to read a great book about this whole experience by George Willison, it uh, was published in the 1950s, still in print. It's a great book. Now he's quoting here from Bradford's journal. Cursing the 42 pilgrims daily with grievous execrations, one of their worst tormentors, a huge brawny seaman, used to taunt the weak and sick by saying that he expected to bury half of them at sea and make merry with their belongings. When they reproached him, no matter how gently, he would curse and swear most bitterly. But retribution was swift in coming. Stricken himself one morning, this proud and very profane young man, spelled Y-O-U-N-G-E, 17th century spelling, this very profane and young man was dead by afternoon, and his body was the first to go overside. To the great astonishment of his wicked cronies, said Bradford, for they saw that it was ye just hand of God upon him. Okay. Fifth fact, they arrived at the worst possible time in New England. The original des destination, as I mentioned, was the mouth of the Hudson River, what they then called North Virginia. However, an Atlantic storm blew them off course, and they arrived 200 miles north at Massachusetts Bay. Here's another, uh, before we move on to Massachusetts Bay, here's another picture of the Mayflower with the people crammed inside on that, on that second level, a drawing of the Mayflower. And down below we have wine and beer and victuals that they're gonna need when they arrive in the new world for eating. Here's, here's a map of Massachusetts Bay. They arrived 200 miles north here at Massachusetts Bay. They found themselves at the edge of Cape Cod. They actually arrived right in this area here. And um, it was mid-November. Bradford records that the sleet was blowing horizontally. They've been nine weeks at sea. These people want to get off the boat desperately, but they can't get off because of the weather. And they, they're going to spend a month exploring this area of Cape Cod, looking for a place where they can build a settlement, where there's fresh water and adequate provisions, and they eventually settle here on Plymouth. And here's Boston up here, where the big immigration, this is about a 30-mile distance between these two. Um, they found themselves at the edge of Cape Cod. It was mid-November, the sleet's blowing. A few of the men spent the next few weeks exploring Massachusetts Bay, looking for a location with fresh running water and, secure, and a secure harbor. Meanwhile, the 102 saints and strangers remained on the Mayflower. While they waited, there was dissension and infighting, as you can imagine, because they've been at sea for nine weeks. Now they've got to wait almost another month on the Mayflower while they explore this bay. And while they waited, there was dissension. To procure order, one of the pilgrims, William Brewster, prepared a civil covenant. Today we call it the Mayflower Compact. And here it is written out in uh, 
Bradford's journal. This is his handwritten copy of the Mayflower Compact. In the name of God, amen, we who, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God a great, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, king and defender of the faith, etc., having undertaken, and he goes on for there, for the glory of God. So they, they, they write this out, and all these men sign this document. They basically agree that we're going to govern ourselves. We're not, going to, we're not going to be wild, and there's not going to be a breakdown of law and order. We're going to choose a governor, which they did, um, and uh, he dies, and then Bradford becomes, ultimately becomes a governor. But we're going to choose a governor, we're going to submit to his authority, and we're going to, we're going to be a body politic. This is important because this is a written constitution. Did you know the United States is the first country to have a written constitution in history? And very few countries today have written constitutions. England doesn't have a written constitution. It's all tradition, going back to Magna Carta, which is kind of a constitution, but not really. And many countries don't have written constitutions. None of your Muslim countries have written constitutions. The United States has a written constitution, and that, that tradition, our written constitution, came from this tradition here, the Mayflower Compact. It was the first attempt at self-government in North America. All of the signers assumed the importance of the Bible and the validity of the morality contained in its pages. The Mayflower Compact expressed their desire to be ruled by law. Like the Puritans, they wanted to be ruled by laws, not kings, as we've mentioned so often in this series of discussions on the Reformation history. It was not a declaration of separation of church and state. That would come later. Rather, these people assumed the union of church and state, okay? So we don't want to go back and impose current ideas back on, these, on, the, on the pilgrims and the Puritans. They came with the idea that they were going to set up their own little Christian utopia in the new world. And everybody in that area was going to worship the same God and the same religion. If you wanted to worship God differently or have a different religion, you'd move to Rhode Island or some other part of New England. But the idea of uh, religious pluralism, as we understand it today, uh, a state with a whole bunch of different denominations, they didn't come to do that. They had no concept of that. I mentioned to you that that would, did not come, that would come in the next 20 or th to 30 years in England with the English Civil Wars, as we talked about. But at this point, that's not an idea that these people have. So after a month of exploration, the pilgrims decided to settle at a small bay with fresh water and a spring. They named it Plymouth after their English departure point. While exploring the area, they found the remains of a Native American village. Later they learned that the Patuxet tribe, which was the name of the tribe, had been wiped out by smallpox a couple of years prior to this. The result was that Massachusetts Bay was unoccupied. And this was a, a tremendous blessing to these people because for two, two reasons. First of all, there weren't any Indians to compete with them for food. And secondly, the Indians that were there needed the pilgrims, because their tribe had been wiped out by uh, smallpox. Neighboring tribes had not been wiped out by smallpox, and so the tribe in that area 
was greatly weakened and they needed reinforcements. And they, eventually they looked to the pilgrims to, be, to give them status because they were from the New World. They were technologically way advanced beyond the Indians and also to help defend them against the other tribes that had not been affected by the smallpox. So this was God going before the pilgrims protecting them. Meanwhile, the situation in New Plymouth was bleak. William Bradford, who eventually became governor, lost his wife, Dorothy. Apparently, she committed suicide. She jumped off the back of the boat. Historians are not surprised by this. Ten years later, at her first sighting of New England, Anne Hutchinson, who is famous in history at that time, quote, that start, that stout-hearted rebel declared that her heart and spirit all but failed her, and that she would have fled in panic back to England when she saw the new world, had she not believed that God was about to destroy England for its sins and iniquities. To picture the forlorn lot or share the soul-searing experience of the pioneer women who first came to our shores is impossible for even the liveliest imagination. So, ladies and gentlemen, just, just picture, you're on the Mayflower. There's 102 of you. You know there's tribes of Indians in those forests. You don't know how many. You don't know if they're friendly or if they're dangerous. You don't know if they're warlike. You don't, you don't even know anything about what's inland two miles. And there's no other Europeans anywhere within hundreds of miles of you. Um, and you're, it's winter. It's freezing cold. You don't have adequate provisions for anything. And you're looking at the forests with the sleet blowing horizontally, and you're thinking, what have I done? I've lost my mind. What am I doing here in this new world? Can't you, can't you just picture this? And so Bradford's wife commits suicide. And Willison's point is that it's not surprising that many of the other women didn't as well. On Christmas Day, December 25, 1620, the 42 pilgrims and the 60 adventurers debarked from the Mayflower and began to construct a, a village of small huts. Now, I have a picture up on the screen, a replica of one of these huts. And when Judy and I were at Plymouth, we took a, they have a little village reconstructed there uh, of what it was like in the first 10 years. I'll show you some pictures in a, in a moment. But the important thing to note about this hut is it just has a piece of cloth for a door. It doesn't have a chimney. Just has a hole in the roof for a chimney and a dirt floor. And it's December in Massachusetts. This is what they constructed. They took them a few weeks to build these. This is how they wintered this first winter. The soon, the settlers, weakened by the long voyage, bad food, serious malnutrition, no sanitation, and exposure to the cold begin to get sick and die. What killed them? Scurvy, tuberculosis, and mostly other pulmonary diseases caused most of the deaths. The entries in Bradford's journal tell the story. I'm going to quote here from his journal. Quote, December 24th dies Solomon Martin, the sixth and last who dies this month. January 29th dies Rose, the wife of Captain Standish. This month, eight of our number die. February 21, die Mr. William White, Mr. William Mullins, with two more. And on the 25th, dies Mary, the wife of Mr. Isaac Allerton. This month, 17 of our number die. March 24, 
dies Elizabeth, the wife of Mr. Edward Winslow. This month, 13 of our number die. And in three months past, dies half our company. Of 100 persons, Bradford writes, scarcely 50 remain alive, the living so weak that they are scarce able to bury the dead. Now, at one point, only five or six were healthy enough to care for the second dying. I mean, this was brutal. This, was, this first winter was brutal, and I mentioned to you that the, um, the rest of the pilgrims had not come, and this is why. Here's a, a marker put down where they buried their dead. I don't know if you can read it, but it says, this monument marks the first burying ground in Plymouth of the passengers of the Mayflower. Here, under cover of darkness, the fast-dwindling company laid their dead leveling the earth above them, lest the Indians should learn how many were in the graves. And it goes on. So in other words, they're very afraid of the Indians at this point in time. They have had any contact with the Indians, and they don't want the Indians to know how many of them are dying for fear that the Indians will attack them knowing that their numbers are weakened. So they have, they, they bury their dead here. They level the ground so you can't identify individual graves, so the Indians can't identify the numbers. When the worst was over, notes, Willison, only three married couples remained unbroken by death. Mortality rate ran highest among the wives, only five of 18 surviving. More than half the heads of households perished. Parents in general and mothers in particular sacrificed themselves for their children. Only one family escaped without a death. Only one family. As spring arrived, their circumstances began to improve. By the end of March, the dying ended. One day in March, a Native American named Squanto surprised them by walking into their village speaking English. The pilgrims immediately offered him rum and beer, which is what all good Christians do. And uh, of course, they didn't know, have no concept at this point in time that Native Americans had a weakness with alcohol. They just didn't know that. But Squanto, uh, a sailing vessel had been in this area, maybe six or seven years prior to this, and they captured some Indians and took them back to the, new, to the old world. Squanto was sold to a group of Franciscan monks in Spain. They kept him for a while, then they sold him to a, an Englishman. Squanto lived in, was a servant to this English family in London for a few years, and he learned English. He begged to be, be returned to his native land, so when a ship sailed, Back to the New World, Squanto was put on board, and he was dropped off six months prior to the Mayflower's arrival. Now, this was God's providence, because they had no way to communicate with the Native Americans except through Squanto. He becomes their interpreter. Also, Squanto taught them how to plant corn. Europeans knew nothing about corn. Corn was a, was a vegetable grown only in North America. The, the pilgrims brought wheat and barley and peas with them, but they didn't grow well. They, they planted them that, that spring. But the Native American corn grew really well. And of course, corn is loaded with calories, and they began to really love uh, corn. Also, Squanto taught them how to fish, how to hunt, and do all kinds of things that helped them to survive. Slowly, their health and strength returned. By that fall, they had established a small village, started their houses for the coming winter, made friends with the Native Americans, and collected a harvest for the coming winter. Remember, there's only 50 of them. Half of them are children. 
So we've got about 25 to 30 adults. Only half of those are men. We've got maybe 10 to, 15, 10 to 18 men to defend themselves against the Native Americans in the, in the area. So they're feeling really vulnerable. They decide to have a Thanksgiving feast in the fall, and they set aside three days to feast. While they're setting up their feast, the Native Americans come with 90 braves. Remember, now we've got about 15 adult men. We've got 90 Indian braves. The pilgrims are kind of freaked out. They're fearful. They're anxious. They know that the Indians could overrun them at any moment. But the Indians don't, because as I mentioned, they need the pilgrims. And so the other big problem is, how are we going to feed these 90 braves? Well, the braves bring five venison with them, five deer. And so they have this three-day feast. Bradford says nothing in his journals about turkey or pumpkin pie. That's all stuff that came later. Uh, the Indian corn, as I mentioned, had grown well. Nevertheless, they had adequate food for the coming winter. Their common dangers and troubles had forged the saints and the strangers into a unified band. Many of the strangers had become, meanwhile, had become stout Christians. Most of the widows and the widowers had found comfort in new marriages. <clears throat> in the 17th century, you got married because you needed a spouse. It wasn't so much about romance as it was utility. So many people had lost spouses during the, the dying in the winter. And so they just married. If there was a widow and you were a widower and you got along halfway well, you got married and you formed a family. That's the way you did it. Their common dangers and troubles had forged the saints and strangers, as I mentioned, a unified band. In October 1621, the pilgrims called for a three-day feast. And we mentioned that, and we mentioned the first Thanksgiving. And their sixth point is this. Their suffering was fruitful. Their suffering was fruitful. They weren't out of the woods until the fourth year in terms of food. In the meantime, they suffered a constant fear of starvation. What changed that? Well, when the pilgrims first came, they set up a socialist regime. Regime. They had common ownership of land. They all worked in the fields. They had common ownership of the crops. And so some people worked really hard, and some people were lazy. The people that worked really hard resented the lazy people, and the lazy people thought it was really a good deal that they could get the fruit of those that were working hard. And as a result, the harvest wasn't very good because everybody wasn't working, and the ones that were working didn't feel like they were getting rewarded, and so things are going bad. At that point in time, after the third year, Bradford said to the people, we're all going to own our own plot of land, and whatever you grow on your land is yours. If you don't grow anything, you're going to starve. If you grow and, and reap, you'll reap whatever harvest you get from your piece of property. Well, after that, they had no more hunger problems. Everybody worked. Those that worked hard reaped the benefit. Those that were lazy didn't get as much, but generally the whole group prospered. So much for socialism. And it's never changed, has it, since then. It's the same today. And by 1630, 10 years after they've landed, 1620, the Puritans in England were experiencing intense persecution, as we've talked about in previous weeks. Word was out that some hardy souls had actually established a viable settlement on the edge of the howling wilderness in Massachusetts Bay. And although by this time, after 10 years, the population is only 300 in, at Plymouth, 
the pilgrims had succeeded where everyone else had failed. In contrast to Jamestown, they succeeded because they were religiously motivated and they came as families. Jamestown, they were mostly single men. But in Plymouth, they came as families. And they were religiously motivated. They also, and when someone died, as I mentioned, they joined a family. The glory of God was their primary motive. They were God-fearing and God blessed their efforts. In 1630, the great migration from England to the New World began to take place. According to historian Paul Johnson, this was the largest exodus from England that had ever occurred up to this date. The first convoy brought a thousand Puritans that settled in Boston Harbor. And over the next 10 years, between 10 and 20,000 Puritans came to the Boston Harbor. And I think by 1640, the population in Plymouth grows to four or 5,000 people because a lot of these Puritans are come, not only going to Boston Harbor, they're coming to Plymouth Bay as well and, and joining the pilgrims there. At the time of the American Revolution, 140 years later, 75% of the colonists could trace their heritage to these early Puritan migrants. Today, over 10 million Americans are directly descended from one of the pilgrim families to one of these 50 people that survived the first winter. Is there anybody here that's directly descended from the passengers of the Mayflower? You are, okay? I met somebody the other day. Somebody, I was, we were talking about the stern. I can't remember who it was. They said to me, my family are directly descended from the Mayflower, one of the Mayflower families. There's 10 million people in America today that are descended from one of these uh, 50 people that made up these surviving families. Let's conclude with four very quick lessons. First one, we can trust in God's providence. Providence is the doctrine that the world and our lives are not ruled by chance but, or by fate, but by God. In the case of the pilgrims, God's providence was at work. He, Squanto came, the plague decimated the Indians before the pilgrims came, which allowed them to set up shop in, in Massachusetts Bay. Squanto came and helped them. All kinds of things happened which enabled them to survive. The Puritans believed in Romans 8.28, and the pilgrims did as well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, even the horrendous sufferings, their journey on the Mayflower, the first winter in Massachusetts, all the things they went through, the pilgrims believed that God was at work in their lives through this, that none of this was accidental. And as a result, they could respond to these sufferings with thanksgiving. The strangers on the boat had a more difficult time doing that. They grumbled, they complained, because, you know, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? But the pilgrims said, yeah, I deserve this. I deserve worse, actually. But God is, is, is work. God is, is sanctifying us, changing us, and working out his purposes through our lives. We can trust God despite our suffering. Second lesson is rejoice in suffering. God often lets his favorites suffer. Jesus is the first example. It can be a sign of his blessing. Christianity is not a free pass to an easy life. Rather, it's about becoming more than conquerors despite trouble in life. Here are some of the benefits that the pilgrims gained through their suffering. It taught them to focus on eternal things, not temporal things. And it sensitized them to God's voice. Suffering always sensitizes us 
to God's voice. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, and you've probably heard it before. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us through our pains. It pains are God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering pains, troubles, stress, whatever, I'm always more open to God speaking to me. I need him to speak to me. And thirdly, not only is that they rejoice in their sufferings, we learn about that, that that's important, but God thirdly expresses his power through weakness. In 1620, no one noticed the sailing of the Mayflower. No one paid any attention to the little village clinging to the edge of Massachusetts Bay. 75 years later, this story was completely lost to posterity. The pilgrims and the strangers had no idea that they were playing a major part in world history. No idea. They died having no idea that they would ever be important or anybody would ever remember them. How their lives bent and shaped the flow of world history is only appreciated with the passing of centuries. So it is with our lives. What are you and I, what are you and I faithfully giving our lives to that neither you nor anyone else knows will have an unanticipated long-term effect? We'll never know about it till eternity. And fourthly and lastly, never take our religious freedoms for granted. God works through weak people. We should never take our freedoms for granted. God works through suffering. And lastly, God is sovereign over all the events in life. Those are lessons we can learn from the pilgrims. Do we appreciate our freedoms? You know, the tragedy is today that our young people don't have any clue about any of this. Or the importance of what our forefathers went through just to have the privilege of worshiping in their own church and enjoying religious freedom. All these things we take for granted today. I take them for granted. You take them for granted. Would we be willing to suffer like this to have the kinds of freedoms that we have today? Well, maybe if we were deprived of our freedoms, we would. Hopefully, that won't be the case. Hopefully, that won't be the case. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for our forefathers. We want to thank you for history, Lord. It's your story. We want to thank you for your sovereign work in history. Thank you for the pilgrims. Thank you for what we can learn from watching and observing them. Thank you for their, their sacrifice, their suffering, and all the fruit that it's produced throughout history for the last 400 years. God, give us grace to live with the fortitude and the perseverance and the endurance of these men and women. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.